Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 13, June 14th through June 20th, 1861. We have now had the first pitched battle of the war, so here we are, 13 episodes in, but there are many more to come. We got to introduce two prominent nurses of the war as well as some other key introductions to figures who are going to be with us down the line here. So today we are going to talk about a few more smaller scale events and introduce General, at this point actually Colonel, Ulysses S. Grant. First though, I want to do a little wrap up about the Battle of Big Bethel. With the size of later battles and the large amount of casualties, Big Bethel, should it have occurred, say, in 1864, would be considered a minor skirmish. However, it is the largest battle up to that point, and a couple things happen to come out of it. First, we will see, as we mentioned last week, that Benjamin Butler will not threaten to move up the peninsula. In fact, General John Wool will eventually replace Butler as the commander of Fortress Monroe. Wool had been born in 1784, three years after the great victory at nearby Yorktown during the Revolution, so it would not surprise you to learn that he actually retires before the completion of hostilities in 1863. Butler would place blame on Ebenezer Pierce, who would resign his commission, but return as a colonel of the 29th Massachusetts. Pierce would then go on to also be court-martialed by Wool for incompetency and also for supposedly allowing his men to watch a burlesque show. Pierce would command troops during the seven days and lose an arm, however, so I think we can say he does regain a little of that honor back. However, it becomes clear to Butler that he cannot move without cavalry and more artillery. The Confederates had fallen back to Yorktown, which has pretty strong defenses. Just when it looks as though Butler will have enough men to move out, the first battle of Bull Run will force the reallocation of troops back to Washington. This combined with the end of shorter enlistment periods would be a blow to any plans of facing off against the rebels. It would not be until McClellan's Peninsula Campaign the following year that Union troops would move across Wythe Creek, which had stood before the Confederate works at Big Bethel. In fact, Butler is forced to withdraw from the town of Hampton, which is burned by the Confederates, lest the buildings be used by Yankees or escaped slaves. This is not to say that there was no action. The two sides would continue to skirmish and probe in order to show the flag That is to say, make sure the other side knows that they're still there. Two Confederate units would probe across the creek. One we have already mentioned were Coppenswaves from Louisiana. The second was a cavalry unit commanded by John Bell Hood. Now you know what that means, as I have mentioned a name, and we're going to have a little bit of an introduction on him. So that's uh, that's generally what that's going to indicate here. John Bell Hood 
was born in Kentucky in 1831, graduating from the U.S. Military Academy in 1853. He would resign his commission in 1861 in order to join the Confederate cause. During the war, he would rise from the rank of captain all the way up to major general. It's the one of the more remarkable climbs of the war. Hood would win fame commanding the Texas Brigade in the Army of Northern Virginia and serve as a divisional commander under Longstreet. Wounded in the arm at Gettysburg, which resulted in his left arm being useless for the remainder of his life and losing a leg at Chickamauga, he would be a favorite of President Jefferson Davis after recuperating in Richmond. Hood is one of the generals that Jefferson will put a little bit too much faith in, though, and after recovering, he will be given more responsibility. As an army commander, John Bell performs poorly, suffering major defeats at Nashville and Franklin. Don't worry, though, we'll get there. Just file Hood under the better-off-as-middle-management kind of general for now. I would also like to mention the aftermath of the battle would display some of the more chivalric nature of the early war. Prisoners were exchanged and not treated poorly. The body of Theodore Winthrop was returned, and his effects, minus the sword he had borrowed, were returned. Even the gold watch that he owned was returned. In other battles throughout the war, this may not have been the case. Grand funerals were conducted for the heroes of the fallen, such as Grebel and Winthrop in the north. Henry Wyatt, the North Carolinian private killed on the southern side, will become the first battle casualty buried in the now-famous Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond. The press on both sides would start to play a role. Obviously, there were exaggerations. Some of the veterans of the battle would claim many more were killed than reported by Butler. In fact, if you had gone to the website and checked out a picture, um, there, was a, there was a nice uh, picture of, uh, of the Zouaves uh, running across a field toward the Confederate works. And, you know, it, it seems like a really large engagement. There's probably way too many people in that picture, number one, and they didn't get that close either. So obviously um, things were blown a little bit out of proportion there. Interestingly, the Northern Papers would claim the Confederates were less than honorable for their use of earthworks as protection. Union soldiers, despite their displeasure at the loss, will be prevented from reprisals of looting civilian homesteads. General Butler will punish those of his men who do. In this stage of the war, not the villain that the Confederate propaganda will portray him later. Malaria, scurvy, and measles will start to show up in the camps. Certainly, those from more rural locations would be more susceptible to disease. Twice Butler would be faced with mutiny by men under his command as well. So that all is what will be happening between the York and James Rivers, but we will be back in the future and certainly check out what's going on in later episodes. Overall, I think we can classify Big Bethel as a battle that will show the lack of preparation or lack of experience, I guess we can say, uh, on both sides. Actually, uh, later in the Peninsula Campaign, Union troops will go over uh, the battlefield, and many of them, even in, even in that early stage of the war, will say, man, I can't believe we weren't able to, to take this position 
and you know the confederates thought they had a really strong position you know and obviously they would have not probably have selected that in a later battle or or later engagement so uh, that's sort of the the overall takeaway that we can we can say about big bethel here now we can head back across the mississippi to missouri when we left this theater last we talked about the camp jackson incident and general nathaniel lyon our friend governor claiborne fox jackson will still seek to take control of the state and uh, you know ultimately of course align it with with the confederacy right Actually, there probably was no delusion on either side as to what the outcome of a potential meeting uh, for peace negotiations would be, uh, which is certainly what Jackson sought. He wanted to have a sit-down so that they could negotiate uh, a peaceful settlement of the state. Uh, and, you know, Ultimately, he wouldn't be honest in that negotiation, though, probably. so. For publicity's sake, however, it may have been advantageous to place blame on the other side for the coming violence. The Planners House Hotel in St. Louis would be the site of the meeting. Lyon, now officially a general, Frank P. Blair, and Blair's aide, Horace Conant, would sit down with Jackson and General Sterling Price, commanding the Missouri State Guard. Price, or Old Pap, as he would become uh, to be known, was born in Virginia and studied law at Hampton Sydney College before moving to Missouri in 1831. He serves in Congress before joining the Army during the Mexican-American War, and then served as Governor of Missouri in the 1850s. He spent some time in New Mexico, putting down a small uprising which had murdered the first territorial governor there. Price would pardon some of the men, irritating the Attorney General for the territory, who happened to be Francis P. Blair. So, we already don't really like each other coming into that meeting. Despite Price's political career, he could not prevent Lyon from flying off the handle at the Planners House Hotel. The general was reported to have been dramatically pointed at all in the room and claiming that he would rather see everyone dead than the state out of union control. The writing was on the wall. There would have to be a fight. Jackson withdrew to Jefferson City, where he called for 50,000 volunteers. The capital would not be defended, and Jackson would withdraw even further to the town of Boonville, known for its southern sympathy. Boonville is northwest of Jefferson City, and between St. Louis and Kansas City. Lyon would move his men up the Missouri River and capture Jefferson City without a fight on June 15th. This was not enough. He would still chase after Jackson and the state guard. Price would fall ill leaving the governor in command of the troops. Price was wanting to fall back even further to Lexington, which is about 70 miles west of Boonville. On June 17, 1861, Lyon would catch up to Jackson at Boonville, resulting in the Battle of Boonville, or Boonville Races, as it is sometimes called. The Union General still had two regiments of mostly German volunteers, as well as artillery, and one company of U.S. regulars. Union forces landed eight miles away from Boonville at a plantation. After advancing toward the rebel camp, they are fired upon by enemy pickets who fall back after quickly being outnumbered. The main Confederate force was still comparable in size, 
to Lyon's men, but they were taken by surprise, and shelling began from artillery on land as well as a gunboat from the Missouri River. Union forces would attempt to flank the rebels, who would make a stand, but soon were put to rout. The lack of discipline definitely showed. Boonville would come to be known as the Boonville Races, uh, so this is like the uh, the Philippi races of the Trans-Mississippi. Although, to the credit of the Missouri State Troops, they at least posted pickets and had a minor stand against their attackers, as opposed to those in western Virginia. Lyon would take control of Boonville after the short engagement. His quick and decisive movements were key yet again. Casualties were light. On the Union side, there were five killed and seven wounded, while the Missouri State Guard suffered three killed and nine wounded. Missouri would remain in the hands of the Federals. For the rest of the war, it would not really be threatened, although there would be ongoing guerrilla violence. Price would withdraw the State Guard to the southwest of Missouri, where two important things would happen. One, the State Guard would be trained to a more of an effective fighting capability. Two, troops from Arkansas would move to join them, which will play a role in the coming Battle of Wilson's Creek. So, we will be there soon enough. So, stay tuned for Wilson's Creek. Back in Northern Virginia, we have another smaller-scale battle at Vienna. Vienna is in Virginia, the northern part of Virginia, and on the 17th of June, uh, same day as Boonville, uh, there will be a small-scale skirmish. Irvin McDowell, who we have mentioned, will be the field commander for the Union troops in northern Virginia. He will understand the importance of the railroad lines uh, in northern Virginia for transportation of troops and supplies. While the skirmish at Fairfax Courthouse and another at Arlington Heights on the 1st of June had discouraged further encroachment on Confederate territory, there would be a significance to securing the Alexandria, Loudoun, and Hampshire Railroad line, which was built to run from Alexandria, the hub we mentioned was a, that's right across the river from Washington, through Loudoun County to the west, all the way to the coal fields in Hampshire County, which is now in West Virginia. The rail line would be renamed the Washington and Old Dominion Railroad. Today, there is a popular bike trail in Northern Virginia called the W&OD Trail that runs from Alexandria to Loudoun County. Just to back up, I know we did not talk about the skirmish at Arlington Heights, but essentially the 11th New York, or the you know Fires Wives, we talked about them already, uh, there would be a friendly fire incident uh, with a Michigan regiment, as well as trading some shots with Confederate pickets, which result in uh, one man being wounded on both sides and one fatality from the New Yorkers. So that's, uh, that's what happened at Arlington Heights. On the 17th, McDowell would order General Robert Schenck to move with the 1st Ohio under command of Colonel Alexander McDowell McCook down the rail line to secure it. Robert Schenck and Alexander McCook will go on to have interesting impacts on the war and beyond. Schenck was a big supporter of Lincoln during his presidential campaign and given a generalship as a reward. The native Ohioan would serve eight terms in Congress before and after the war, as well as become an ambassador to Brazil. Schenck was also known as an authority on poker and even wrote a rule book about the card game. Alexander McCook would rise to the rank of Major General and command a corps at Chickamauga. 
he had served on the frontier before the war and would stay in the army to serve on the frontier after. In 1896, he was the U.S. representative at the coronation of Tsar Nicholas II. Anyway, it had been rumored that the Confederates would try to destroy the railway. The 1st Ohio would place pieces of the regiment at various locations, using a train to transport them along the track. Confederates under the command of Maxie Gregg would hear the train whistle and set up an ambush for the Federals. The South Carolinian Maxie Gregg was primarily a lawyer before the war, with a brief stint in the army during the Mexican conflict. His 1st South Carolina Infantry, along with two companies of cavalry and two artillery pieces, were scouting on the same day that this operation with the 1st Ohio on the train uh, was occurring. A Union sympathizer reportedly would warn the Union troops of the Confederate plans, but the caution was not heeded. Only an officer was placed on the front of the train. As the Union train rounded a bend, they spied rebel cavalry, but before they could open fire from their flatbed cars, the enemy artillery opened up, inflicting casualties. The train was not moving very fast, so many of the Ohio troops escaped by jumping and fleeing into the woods. Because they were backing down the track, the locomotive was ordered to move out of range of the artillery. The cars would be uncoupled, and so the engine steamed away, leaving the Yankees. McCook was able to form up uh, his men in the woods, and some used the stranded cars for cover. Ultimately, both sides were slightly out of range. Darkness would conceal the Union retreat, and even though the Confederates outnumbered their enemies some 750 to 270, they would not give chase in fear that there was a larger Union force not far behind. Southerners suffered no casualties, while the Northerners lost 8 killed and 4 wounded. While trains had been used for supply transport in the Crimean War, this was possibly the first use of a train in combat. The Vienna Affair, as it would alternatively be known, would mark the end of hostilities before the Manassas Campaign. Staying in the East, on June 20th, we have West Virginia officially breaking away from the Old Dominion. Sectional differences, much like in the case we mentioned with Tennessee, boiled over. With the success of federal forces, the West Virginians would be emboldened to break and remain loyal to the Union. The rugged mountain areas of West Virginia were home to German and Scotch-Irish immigrants. Self-sufficient farmers and miners would have little use for slavery and differ greatly from the interests of the distant capital in Richmond. After the American Revolution, uh, the more western-leaning region had attempted to break free, so this is actually happening uh, right now. It's nothing really new there. Meeting at Wheeling in 1861, oddly enough, the original name for the new state was proposed as Kana after a Native American tribe and river. The name would be changed to West Virginia a little later, but I, for one, like Kana, uh, which is spelled uh, like Kanawa, uh, better, although it is nice to say WVU when watching the Mountaineers, I guess. Maybe that's why they're in the Big 12, because they can't stand the East still to this day. We'll never know. Back to the Wheeling Convention, though. John S. Carly would draft a declaration for the people of Virginia declaring the secession against the people's will uh, and, and actually stating that it was illegal for them to secede 
uh, from the Union. Actually, West Virginia could not be formed legally without the consent of Virginia. So, sort of a loophole there, right? Obviously, they needed Benjamin Butler to represent them in court. He probably would have won the case. To get around this, Lincoln would recognize the new government uh, as that of the state of Virginia, and so separation was granted. Francis Pierpont would serve as the governor of the restored Virginia. West Virginians would become uh, the 35th state in the Union in 1863 officially, and the last state east of the Mississippi River. In Illinois, on the 17th of June, a colonelship would be awarded to one Ulysses S. Grant. Grant had been somewhat of an interesting figure. Born Hiram Ulysses Grant, his name was changed after a writing error at West Point. Even though Grant graduated 21st out of 39, he received two citations for gallantry during the Mexican-American War, serving under Zachary Taylor, whom Grant would try to emulate later as a general. After the war, he was posted in the distant frontier, where he would develop a reputation as a drinker. Posted away from his family, uh, being isolated, definitely took its toll, as I think most of us can relate to after this COVID-19 pandemic. And unfortunately, uh, you know, whether Grant had these issues, um, this is a sort of uh, reputation that's going to continue for the rest of his career, right? There's always going to be questions about Grant and drinking and accusations that he was drunk during battles, you know, things like that one um, probably was not the case. Grant would resign his commission in 1854, most likely to avoid repercussions from his commanding officer. Sort of a, you can't fire me, I quit uh, kind of deal. Ulysses would try to make it as a farmer, but failed, eventually selling firewood in St. Louis to get by. And actually, there is a, uh, a popular antidote where a fellow officer who had served with Grant during the Mexican-American War uh, actually is riding by, and he sees Grant selling fire that firewood, and he asks him uh, what he's doing, and Grant replies that he is uh, solving the problem of poverty. Uh, so that's the kind of uh, guy we're dealing with here. His wife, Julia Dent, actually did come from a family of slaveholders, and the Grants uh, did have one slave named William Jones. Despite his misfortune, Grant would free William Jones, which, given his circumstances, could not have been an easy decision. And actually, just to back up a little bit about uh, Julia Dent, uh, there's also uh, a sort of a famous story where uh, Grant actually gets rejected the first time when he uh, proposes uh, to Julia uh, before the Mexican-American War, uh, but uh, is, is successful the second time. And it is quite humorous. Um, he, he sort of asks her without asking her the first time, which, um, you know, I'm not no expert on the matter, but I'm sure that's really not, not a good move uh, in that scenario, and it, it didn't work out for him, so he, he learned from his mistakes. So. Uh, but, you know, all throughout the Mexican-American War, um, he's constantly writing to Julia, and he really wants to, to return to his wife. So, um, you know, that, that also kind of puts things into perspective for when he was placed out on the frontier, uh, you know, in Washington State, how, um, you know, devastating that could have been uh, mentally. 
At the outbreak of the war, Grant would be working as a store clerk in Galena, Illinois, actually working under his two younger brothers. He would seek employment in the Army and have a tough time of it. Grant was even denied an interview in Cincinnati to attach himself to the staff of George B. McClellan. And actually, he sits in McClellan's office and waits to see him, you know, much like that that famous story that we talked about with uh, Lincoln waiting to see McClellan in Washington, D.C. With aid from a friend in Congress, Grant would be given command of the 21st Illinois and quickly rise to the rank of general. Now that we have entered Ulysses S. Grant onto our humble stage, I think we can call it a day. I think we were able to wrap up Big Bethel fairly nicely and see the importance of that smaller battle early in the war. We traveled from the Trans-Mississippi back to Virginia and have started to hatch the egg of West Virginia. Next week, we will have another lighter episode, but I'm hoping to maybe cover some tactics and recruitment of troops, so uh, stay tuned for that. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review, specifically uh, Apple iTunes reviews there. Those would be helpful. Posted in the description should be a link to the Patreon uh, Venmo uh, information as well. Support for the general upkeep of the show uh, would be welcomed. I'm going to go ahead and post. keep posting some pictures on the, the website. That link will also be in the description. And once again, feedback is appreciated. Any questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening, and have a great week.